Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey everybody, welcome back to OnScript. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. I'm not going to give a long intro, but I do want to say a special thank you to Ed Hackey, who was nearing the end of his time with OnScript after having produced who knows how many episodes. I think it's over 200. So, uh, Ed, we're going to miss you. Um, You're not gone yet, but it will be at the end of the summer. We've got a new team coming on to replace that. It takes a team to do that, and we're grateful for those who are going to be involved in that, but I just want to express that appreciation here. So, uh, without further ado, enjoy this episode. Welcome OnScript listeners. I am here with the Reverend Dr. Mark Scarlatta, who is a tutor and a lecturer in Old Testament studies at St. Melitus College in uh, London. And Mark is also a vicar chaplain at St. Edward King and Martyr Cambridge, where he serves as the priest as one of the oldest churches in Cambridge that was also integral to the English Reformation. Mark is married to Bettina and they have three kids. Uh, Let me list off all your books here, Mark, before we get going, because you are quite prolific, and we're going to have to talk at some point how you're doing this as both a lecturer and a full-time priest. But you have Outside of Eden, Cain in in the Ancient Versions of Genesis 4, 1 through 16 with T.N.T. Clark, Am I My Brother's Keeper, Christian Citizenship in a Globalized Society with Cascade, The Abiding Presence, a Theological Commentary on Exodus with SCM Press, A Journey Through the World of Leviticus, Holiness, Sacrifice, and the Rock Badger with Cascade, which is what we're going to talk about today. Uh, And also forthcoming, you have the Theology of the Book of Leviticus within the Old Testament Theology series with Cambridge University Press, which will also fold into the discussion today as well. With this, I also looked on Amazon and found out you have even more books out there floating around uh, that I'm not going to list, but there are even more. And um, you're doing all of this while you're a priest. Well, first of all, welcome, Mark, to OnScript. Thank you. It's great to be with you. And we, you are a second-time uh, act on OnScript as well. So we've talked about the Exodus book. So you have a little Genesis, a little Exodus. We're talking about Leviticus now. Is the next book numbers? Are you just working your way through the Bible? Or? You know, that's what my students keep asking me, and, I, and I'm not really sure. I mean, Exodus and, and Leviticus just kind of connected together, I think. They naturally connect. Um, numbers, I, you know, it's funny. I haven't had, I mean, there's so many great stories in numbers, but no big desire to uh, to dive into that. I had thought about De- Deuteronomy at some point, but I'm actually working on something completely different at the moment, uh, which, you, which you know because you helped me uh, kind of form my thoughts on this, but which is a, uh, a biblical theology of wine. So I've kind of gone out of the Pentateuch and into, well, across really the whole Bible um, to look at the material and metaphor and the use of wine in the uh, in the Bible. So that's been that's been good fun. So something a little bit different. Somehow worked into your profession a reason that you have to drink all <laughs> kinds of wine now, right? right. <laughs> you know, I was looking at the books on my... Uh, like, sorry, honey, it's just business. I need to really finish this bottle tonight. <laughs> exactly. If you walked into our home, you would easily think I was an alcoholic because there is a, um, a book by a couple of books that I had just laying around, and one was called the Wine Bible. Um, it's just all about you know all about wine around the world. And then there was another one sitting on top of it um, by a, a chap called Roger Scrunton um, called "I Drink Therefore I Am." 
am. <laughs> like, so, you know, if you came into my house and you saw the wine bottles lying around, and uh, you, you you would think it wasn't a uh, a biblical theology of wine, but I promise just, it is. Just research. Just research. <laughs> just the best kind of research ever. So let's begin with how did you? I always I always think biblical studies is such a weird profession. So. How did a normal person like you end up in biblical studies? And uh, we'll get to the priesthood later, but I'm interested specifically in how you ended up in biblical studies. Yeah, biblical studies. You know, I did my I did my MDiv at um, a place called Gordon Conwell, uh, just around Boston, and had to do. You know, we were forced in our MDiv to do you know a couple of semesters of Hebrew and then exegesis, a couple of semesters of Greek. And I just found that I loved Hebrew. I just, I loved everything about it. When I went off, um, I went off to become an associate pastor in Connecticut for about seven years in the congregational church after seminary. And I found myself just wanting to keep kind of delving into the language. So then we ended up going back up to Yale for an MA because it was the closest place to us. And I don't, yeah, I don't know. It was something about it. I mean, in particular, the Old Testament. I think, you know, you probably like me and, and many others listening to the podcast, um, you know, if you've grown up in a semi-Christian home or around, you know, around the church, you are kind of fed on the New Testament, but you usually know very, very little about the Old Testament. And so I think the more that I delved into it, just the more fascinated I was with how uh, just with how critical it was to interpreting scripture in general, but just in in terms of um, you know in terms of faith, in terms of life, um, all of these types of things. So, so then, yeah, I just kind of caught the bug, I suppose. And after after kind of going back to Yale while I was still working as a pastor, it was then that I kind of realized that you know, thought you know I really love this stuff, and 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 the next step is kind of you know doing the PhD. That's kind of the final step, and and I knew at that point, you know, I mean, I think you know, the market for PhDs right now is not, you know, <laughs> for, right, to, for right. finding a job is not light. great. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's not great. Um, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't, you know, I mean, it was somewhat similar back then, but, um, but I think for me, um, having been involved in ministry, wanting to kind of pursue, you know, and I remember having a conversation with one of my professors up at Yale and um, they were talking about, because I said, well, what if I go and do the PhD, but, um, you know, but, but don't become a professor because there's not many jobs out there. Um, You know, then what? And, and she responded and said, you know, well, you know, throughout the history of the church, you know, the, the scholar priest has been a vocation that has been, you know, a critical part of the church, you know, the doctors of the church and that kind of thing. And it was funny because I think when she said that, that kind of clicked in my own head and in my own calling. And and I just realized, I thought, oh, yeah, you can actually be, uh, you know, a diligent um, kind of accomplished scholar in say, biblical studies, uh, and also continue to serve in the church and, you know, and, and use both of those things as, you know, as part of your vocation, part of your calling. Yeah, maybe one day you'll get there. Yeah, someday. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But I'm, I'm hoping, I was just reading, it was funny, I was just reading. Uh, I, was, I was a joke. I know, yeah, no, you're obviously uh, accomplished. I was reading um, uh, something, a little blurb on, on Thomas Aquinas. And, um, and, and actually the goal of where I'm getting to is the point where I kind of reach the, the, the beatific vision and then just stop writing everything. And then it just all ends. And then like, you know, and then you can start enjoying life. <laughs> Yeah, the goal is to become like Thomas Aquinas. I got it. Yeah. 
So how, do you feel like working in the priesthood in, in Cambridge, your, your church is like right smack dab in the, in the middle of it all there. Do you feel like that in any way shifts or sculpts your research or your writing agenda? Yeah, I think it does, actually. I mean, I think, you know, I wrestled a lot and, I, and, and maybe some other other scholars who are who are very committed to their faith and their life in the church. I think I suffered from the, the, the dilemma when I first graduated from Cambridge with my PhD of, of do I write for the academy? Uh, you know, do I pursue that kind of scholarship or do I write for the church or, you know, and then, you know, kind of how is, how, how was I going to find a balance of this? And I think what I've found is being at St. Melitus, which is a, a theological college or a seminary in London, I think I've tried to find my niche and my balance between, you know, kind of all the academic training that I've had, but also seeing that there is, there's specific meaning behind the text. Uh, I loved an interview you did um, with someone recently, uh, and it was uh, with an African woman who was talking about the hermeneutic of power, the scripture, scriptural hermeneutic of power. And and I thought that was such a fascinating, oh, I loved, I just love when she said that because... Liz and Buru. Yeah, yeah, I was just yes, trying to Liz, think of her name, Liz, Liz and Buru. Yeah. And it was such a wonderful way to put it because it it kind of framed what I feel like my particular scholarship is in the sense of, you know, it's not just, and and there's nothing wrong with kind of scholarship for scholarship's sake, you know, going into the ancient world and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I, I appreciate that as much as anyone, but there is something about the kind of commitment to the Christian faith and the Christian life in the church that shapes your writing in such a way that you feel like there's something more to be said than maybe just a point of curiosity or, you know, kind of putting up some theory as to why this was written or when it was written or whatever. And so, yeah, so I think the church does shape, shape the way, it shapes the way that I write and it shapes, um, you know, the other, the other thing that shapes the way that I write is that we've got um, one of the, the ministries of the church is, is a, a little group that we call the scriptorium. And so we have a group of uh, PhD students who are mostly uh, kind of in the university doing different uh, different types of degrees. And we gather on a Tuesday and Wednesday with kind of a, basically like a liturgical format to the day. We have morning and evening prayer. We gather for lunch. We have discussions around these things. And what I've found in that group is an amazing kind of hive of Christian thinking um, on a, you know an absolute variety. When we talk about any topic under the sun, whether it's social, political, economical, whatever it is, and I find that that has really shaped how I think and how I understand things. And and it's funny because I think that's also made me realize how deficient our scholarship is sometimes maybe in comparison to let's say the rabbis who you know if they gathered in a synagogue to study torah it was always study done in community and there's something i'm sure you've had the same experience that when you study with people in community you know your your, your ideas are shaped and they go all different directions and in ways that you can't just you can't experience that you can't have as just a kind of isolated, you know, off in your ivory tower scholar type thing. Yeah. It's usually the best you get is like emails from friends are like, Hey, have you seen this book? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. And you're like, yeah, I just, I just reviewed it. <laughs> yeah. 
So this book that you've done with Cascade, it's, you know, my subtitle for it would be uh, Leviticus has a PR problem. I mean, it really does. Like, like I've been at meetings recently with normal Christians who like groaned at the idea of having to read Leviticus out loud. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Or, you know, one, one, I was at a place where a pastor like said, to make an example said, does anybody actually like the book of Leviticus? Like, raise your hand if you like it. And I, I mean, I think he was being rhetorical, but I was like, <laughs> I raised my hand. I love it. <laughs> it's, not, it's my favorite book in the Bible. I love it. Yeah. Uh, so what, what, what got you down the road to Leviticus? And then um, like what, you know, if you talk about the felt need that you're answering here, what's the felt need that you think you're answering? Yeah. I, I mean, I think I, 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 my experience has been the same. Actually, it was really funny. I've been teaching a, a, an MA class or lecture, series of lectures on Leviticus this term. And one of our, one of our students turned to me just, to, just this past week and said, you know, when I saw that Leviticus was on our core, you know, our core modules, the core lessons that we had to take, he said, really, my heart just sunk. He thought, I saw <laughs> He said, I thought it was going to be the the most dry, worst, boring class. He's like, this has turned out to be the best class I've taken at the college. And um, and it was just, it was a wonderful kind of testimony to, to when you actually begin to start reading Leviticus. It's just, you know, I mean, this whole new world opens up. But I think for me, one of the reasons why um, I got into it was because I had written that commentary on Exodus, uh, this kind of theological commentary. And I realized that so much of what I was trying to argue in Exodus about this kind of main motif about God's divine presence coming down to dwell with his people you know, Exodus kind of finishes with this, you know, God's glory coming down on the tabernacle after Moses has built it and no one can enter. And it was kind of like, it was a bit of a cliffhanger, you know, and I I, I kind of finished Exodus thinking, well, wait a second, that can't be, you know, where do we go from here? And then that's really where you get, you know, Leviticus comes into its own. So that's what kind of originally got me started on it. And then um, just before, well, actually it was just during the first lockdown we had, kind of 2019, we did a teaching series at our college, uh, and we did it on Zoom, and 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 we did a four-part series on Leviticus. And so we had all these people who were bored to death sitting at home, and like you know, probably never would have come to a Zoom class on Leviticus, but they did, <laughs> and it was um, and it was great because what it what came out of that, out of the four questions or the four sorry the four sessions was just a list you know so we just cut and paste the chat because we just asked people to put questions in the chat and so literally i took all of those kind of four sessions of of, you know cut and paste the chat onto word documents looked at all these questions and just started figuring out chapters in my head and thinking okay how do i explain this to just your average churchgoer you know and then it was just it was really fun actually because it just the book kind of itself just took took its own shape and and it was just really literally in response to people who were like I don't get it. <laughs> like, why do women seem to get like the short end of the stick always in Leviticus? <laughs> that was a big one, actually. That came out pretty, pretty few frequently. Yeah, that com- that comes out throughout the whole Torah, I think. Uh, so, which you got to put on the right goggles. And and the book unfolds quite. I mean, it is it, even I was looking back through it again. I'd read it before, but um, it unfolds quite naturally. You know, you're halfway through the book, going, "Oh wow, I've been reading a book on Leviticus." Like for me, it's exciting, but uh, it works. You opened the book though with talking about, you know, kind of the loss of wonder, the loss of the idea of sacred space, or you know, the loss that we have necessarily uh, sacred space. 
And also a lot of the peculiar problems that the Israelites faced, like what was their actual world like? So why did you open with this kind of space and wonder and uh, agrarianism? That's a unique mix, I guess, uh, to, to get people hooked on Leviticus. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's something actually that I've continued to come back to in my own research. And especially as I've, you know, as if I've been working on this book on wine, um, you know, when you start getting into kind of some of the agricultural sides of wine, you begin to realize uh, just kind of the depth and the power of the metaphor and the material, you know, and just what what wine meant to ancient Israel and, and all the depth of that. But I think one of the things for me that I, re- in, in reading Leviticus, you know, for the first few times that I went through it, I think what I realized was that, that I was missing something from my kind of worldview as what, what is it, what is it about what I'm seeing um, and, and the way that I'm seeing it and why, you know, the other thing I couldn't figure out, I was thinking, well, why are my students asking questions like, like, why would God want to kill, you know, want us to kill an animal? And it was this, you know, they, they made sacrifice sound as if it was this, um, you know, this barbaric, you know, horrendous thing. And I kept in the back of my mind thinking, you don't see the slaughterhouse down the road that is, you know, treating, you know, treating animals like, you know, like nothing, like that they are just, that they're not creatures, that they are just literally material objects to be killed, slaughtered, packaged up and put on your groceries, you know, on your grocery store counter or in the grocery store refrigerator. And yet somehow, you know, killing a single animal, you know, with a knife is, is somehow more barbaric in people's minds than what goes on in our world today. And and so that kind of really got me thinking, I'm thinking, why? Like, what is going on with our world? And so I've delved into, you know, well, as we do, all sorts of research and things like that. And I think, you know, one of the things that's come out, and I've heard more and more people talking about it, actually, since I've been researching it, but is this kind of idea of this of you know the disenchantment or the desacralization of our world that that our world is one in which we treat the material world just simply as material it's nothing more than stuff that we can use for economic gain um, for our own pleasure for our own consumption um, unfortunately I think all of this lead has led us to our kind of ecological crises but but the idea in Leviticus, um, and what I tried to argue in the in the first chapter is that is that to enter into this world of sacrifice and ritual, you know, as you know, that there's this you you we have to enter into a kind of a sacred view of the world in which you know where God is in everything, not kind of in the pantheistic way, but where God's God's power, his life, his breath, his, you know, his sustaining of the whole cosmos is something that fills life. And, you know, in Leviticus in particular, there's the, there's also the concentrated portion of that glory and holiness in the tabernacle, but it also fills all things. And so, so in that, once you, once you kind of try to take the leap, I think, out of our own kind of desacralized society where we have these, you know, these kind of great chasms in our thought between, you know, well, killing a single animal is somehow barbar, you know, kind of barbaric, but killing, you know, 8,000, you know, cows a day in a slaughterhouse with, you know, those, what are those things called? You know, those like 
those bolt guns. Yeah. Yeah. Somehow that's, you know, that's fine. You know, that's ethically, <laughs> ethically okay. Um, so I think that's where we need to kind of step out of our world. And, and again, so much of that is, is our detachment and our, our detachment from the land, our detachment from f- things like food production, things, you know, the way that we treat the land and the consequences that it has. So I think that whole idea of, of, you know, and and some scholars. I was just reading. I've actually got it on my desk here. Warren Wiersbe's um, "The Sacred Life." You know, talk about this this reenchantment of the world. Like, how do we reroot ourselves in creation to understand how we fit into the economy of creation, but also how we engage with and interact within the whole economy of creation as kind of a participant, not as someone who is separate, just treating the world as material. And so I think I think that is one of the keys, at least for me it was, and why I put it at the beginning of the book, um, one of the keys to recognizing Okay, we have a very, very different, obviously, cultural view and and worldview than these ancient authors did. And I think that that's key. I mean, and, and I know, I mean, you've done tons of studies in Leviticus, and you've done all sorts of studies in ritual and things like that. I mean, you know, I mean, is this something that you see as as kind of a, one of the hurdles that we need to get over in order to begin to really a kind of grasp and interpretation of of this you know of this book. Yeah, no, I was stuck in my, all my own thinking. It wasn't until I read your book that I was like, oh yeah, <laughs> this is another layer that I've completely ignored. <laughs> but but no, you I, know, I, I get can, tunnel I can, vision. I can switch so. that around because I'll just say that that yeah. But it wasn't until your book that I flipped around and saw that this ritual thing was so important. <laughs> okay, well that's good. Good. I mean, it's almost like a community of scholars. Iron sharpens iron. That's yeah. right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so yeah, no, it was very very helpful to me. And I mean, even little things. Things like, and you you've mentioned this here and other places. This that you know the meat consumption. You know we glibly eat meat, uh, and yet it, this is part of and wine as well. That this is all part of the caloric intake. You know even the even the admonitions against drunk drunkenness probably has as much to do with the famine breaching that it can bring um, as anything else. So. Like this idea that uh, they're sitting around having, you know, like Brazilian barbecue every every weekend. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> uh, that, that might be disturbing, actually, but that's not what's going on. So b- because this is Leviticus and, you know, because it's the Torah, really, we have to talk about the issue of holiness. Now, holiness and holy are one of my banned words when I do oral exams. I'm like, can't, can't say this word unless you're willing to use it in a, in a technical way. So what do you mean by holiness and how do you bridge the gap between the kind of the blah Christianese version of holy and, and the Levitical sense of holy? Yeah, gosh, it's a, it's a tough one. So you have, you have kind of the standard, you know, Hebrew definition of something that's being set apart, but, but certainly there is the idea of something is set apart. So only God is holy. And so only he can kind of make something holy, whether it's a holy object, you know, something tongs or something you use in the, in the tabernacle, um, whatever it is. But I think, you know, as, as I kind of kept thinking about it, and I might be completely wrong in this, but, um, but this, this is kind of my concept of holiness, because one of the things is is that is that holiness is not certainly in Leviticus and, and actually just just had a, a session on this with my students my MA students holiness is not in for Leviticus some type of abstract concept that I can never achieve you know it's it's this you know 
this kind of high, like who can ever be holy? It's not that type of thing. So when you read Leviticus 19, and I said to my students, I said, okay, here's the, here's the goal, you know, be holy, therefore, as the Lord your God is holy. And I said, you know, just can anybody live to that standard? No, no, we're all sinners. No, no one can live, you know, no one can be holy. And, and I said, well, let's start going down the list of things that you can do, you know, and, and you know, don't wear, you know, mixed fabric, um, you know, don't plant, you know, to a field with two seeds of different kinds, whatever it is, you know, all these things, loving, you know, loving your neighbor and all these kinds of things. And I said, can you do those things? <laughs> and they were like, well, yeah, yeah, obviously. And I'm like, yes, then you can be holy. I'm like, then that's it. You know, that there is something about doing these particular things in relation to our neighbor. Like you also have sacrifice in relation to God, but there are particular things that we can do in relation to our neighbors and our families and the people around us that express the love of God through our human engagement. And so for me, holiness, as I kind of thought about it more and more, is that the holier we are, as it were, the holier we become by doing these things, the closer we draw to the heart of the Father. And I, and I think probably I'm influenced most by John's gospel and this idea of, you know, of kind of this union with Christ and being drawn to the heart of the Father through the Son and through the Spirit. Um, and so, and so holiness, it seems to me, and if you, if you then kind of, you know, go, you know, jump forward to the New Testament and say, okay, if Christ is holy, then what does holiness look like? Well, it looks like, you know, caring for the poor. It looks like being hanging out with the outcasts of the world and those who are vulnerable. It looks like being a servant. Uh, it looks like, you know, casting out demons. I mean, all, all of these types of things that are, you know, that, that so, so that idea of separating, I think, in the Hebrew is still there. I guess in a Christian mindset, I think of it as being separate from the old, as it were, from, you know, what Paul calls the sinful flesh and all that kind of stuff, and drawing closer to the heart of the Father. And that is the, so holiness is not, and I think I can't remember, I I'm, I'm, think I talk about it in this book, um, that it's, you know, it's not this kind of whitewashed, I want to stay away from the riffraff of the world. Like, you know, I'm never, like I, you'd never catch me at a, you know, at a, at a bar or a nightclub in New York city after 2 AM in the morning, because I'm a holy person. It's not that at all. Yeah. It's, yeah. Cause I've definitely been caught yeah. at a bar after 2 AM. <laughs> exactly. In New York city. <laughs> and uh, that's what we call a Tuesday night at yeah, my yeah. office. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> Typical Wednesday at King at the King's college. That's right. Uh, going out to do ministry. Um, but I mean, I think that's it. And I think that's where the confusion is. And, and so when you mention the word holy, you're right, it often gets kind of so twisted in this language of, of holier than thou, or I've got to whitewash my outside so that I look holy, you know, I act holy. Um, when I think, you know, that, you know, I mean, if we really want a kind of an example of holiness or the example of holiness, you know, and we look to the life of Christ, you know, we see this that holiness fundamentally, I think, in the end, is about relationship. It's about being drawn near to the Father. But, um, but yeah, that's that's. My, I mean, that's where I've gone with it. I, I'm probably wrong, but <laughs> no, I think that's helpful. And and there is some abstinence language in holiness, like don't defraud the day worker, don't put a stumbling block in front of blind people, don't. Uh, which I'm when I read that in class, I'm like, who who would even do that? Like why? 
like uh, don't rip people off in the marketplace. I mean, it re- it's really low hurdle stuff. Yeah, or mocking the deaf. I mean, you know, I, I got into that and I started reading when I was writing this book and I started reading um, some works by John Swinton and I went back to Stanley Stanley Hauerwas and, you know, and kind of, you know, this, this idea, you know, this idea of ministry to, to those with different disabilities. And I'm like, good Lord, I'm like, this is Leviticus. I'm like, this is, you know, like, God commands his people like not to mock people who or not to treat them kind of scornfully if they have a physical disability. You know, and it's so funny because the other question that always comes up in Leviticus is the person, you know, if the priest is is maimed or, you know, or has some sort sort of deformity, they can't go and perform temple service. And and I always get the question, like, you know, isn't this completely exclusionary? Isn't Leviticus just one of these books that's, you know, that's that's kind of excluding people? And I thought, and I thought, well, no, 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 yes, and no. I mean, yes, there's a reason for it, but no, not in the way that you're thinking. Because when you look at some of these other passages, you think that that's not at all what it's getting at. Right. It's kind of like people filtering all of Paul through his, you know, I don't allow a woman to speak. More yeah. like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. A, that was his only thought on the matter. That was the only <laughs> yeah. exactly global, universal. Everything yep. funnels down into that. That's yeah. it. Yeah. Um, no, that's. I think that's uh, really helpful development on Leviticus. You said something there that reminded me of something that has now slipped my mind, but maybe it'll pop back up as you keep talking. Oh, uh, I know what it was. Speaking of Jesus, have you read Matt Thiessen's, uh book? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a great one. No, so, I, I enjoyed. Yeah, that. give me your critique, right? Because I'm actually going to interview. This is you're, you're part of a ritual series. I've already interviewed Christian Eberhard, uh, you, and then I'm going to interview. I'm going to re-interview him because I got my own questions for him, and he's agreed to do it. So. Do you feel like what he's doing with Jesus and the forces of death fits in here? Yeah, I think it's a good reading of of kind of bringing in some of the Levitical laws to, you know, to Jesus. Actually, we're going to look at that. Um, we've got one more session in my class, and, and we do Jesus in the New Testament, Leviticus in the New Testament. And so I'll use a lot of his stuff. But I think he, he does. I mean, I think he he really, he takes some of the, um, you know, some of the passages, I think if I remember correctly, he goes through um, mostly the gospel of Mark at one point. Yeah, and, um, which is and, my favorite. Oh, it should be yours as it, well. Exactly. And mine. <laughs> um, and he, you know, I thought it was a great way because what I had been thinking before I actually picked up his book, what I had been thinking was, um, and I think I talked about it, or I talk about it in this book is, is kind of the power of holiness, the power of holiness, either to heal and reconcile or the power of holiness to destroy. You know, we have the story of um, Aaron's sons getting destroyed because they you know, offer this alien fire. And so I had been thinking about the concept and then, and, you know, and then you go to kind of John one fourteen and the tabernacling presence of Christ and, and this kind of clear imagery of, of the power of holiness being present in Christ. And so what was interesting is I had this kind of thing in my head about about the power of Christ. So whether to cast out demons or whether to heal disease and all of these things. And then it was funny because then I picked up Matthew Thiessen's book. And then when he, it was the forces of death thing that linked it with me, you know, that kind of brought me back to the purity laws and things of that nature. And I thought, oh, yes, yes, that's a great phrase to use because it's the power of holiness to eradicate death, basically, and all these outward signs, whether it's, you know, skin disease or bleeding or whatever it is, you know, these things that were, you know, that are discussed in Leviticus as as things that keep you from entering into, you know, the tabernacling presence of God, uh, you know, or to the temple. And I think that that was one of the things I tried to explain to my students. I said, you know, you know, one of the main differences, you know, between the Old and the New Testament is that, 
that the power of God that descends, you know, this divine descent we have in Exodus and the power of God that resides and abides in the tabernacle, the rules and regulations are as much for our protection as they are for, you know, protecting the sanctity and the, and the, you know, the cleanness of the tabernacle. And I said, you know, that, that this is not God trying to create boundaries or borders to separate himself from his people in the Old Testament. It's him creating boundaries and borders so that he can be in relationship with his people. And that kind of, that kind of messes with people's thinking. And then, I, and then that kind of naturally, and then so I said, does that more, does that help us more naturally progress to a movement of salvation in this kind of divine descent, God dwelling, abiding with us, but now in the incarnation? I'm, I'm like, does it not seem so like polar opposite from old to new, but actually it's a continuation of, you know, this, this broader story. But, um, but yeah, no, but I like, I liked, I liked Jesus' work. I thought, I thought it was really good. Oh, good, because I liked it too. Oh, good. I was waiting for someone to just tell me why it's all wrong. <laughs> tear, it, like, tear it apart, yeah. Yeah, I was having trouble. I was just like, I like everything he's saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, tell me if you like this analogy. Maybe I've heard this analogy from you. I don't know, but I use the electricity analogy, that electricity is a very powerful and dangerous, potentially dangerous thing. But through a well-mediated electrical code, you know, you can be in its presence, you know, it's everywhere in this room without worrying about it, tearing everything down and destroying it down and, or uh, burning everything up. Um, and that priest, priestly activities are in some ways, you know, electrical code mm. um, that allow the, us to be in the presence of. Um, okay, have you read Christian Eberhardt's book, The Sacrifice of Jesus? I don't think I've come. I've heard of it, but I don't think I've read it. Okay, well, you you kind of a, already tipped uh, tipped your hat a little bit to the same concept of um, he he argues that sacrifice is not violent or bloody in Levitical thinking, and neither is it in the New Testament that nobody associates Jesus' sacrifice to any kind of, uh, or, or Jesus' death to sacrifice, and that sacrifice is actually doing something else. Uh, but you do note in this book about um, that blood is complicated. So it's both, as Matt Teason would call, a detergent, but also it's something, a sign of decay and death. He got that from Milgram, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> every... every- Sorry, everything comes from Milgram, basically. Everything one, is derivative. In, in, so one, derivative. Yeah. in one way or the other. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what happens when, you know, you write one of those master volumes or three volume set that explains everything. So kind of putting this for Christians, because it's a lot of what your book does is it translates these ideas so that Christians can have kind of easy points of access. I think most people, Christian-wise, you know, if they've saying nothing but the blood of Jesus— they have a sense of the one way it's complicated, but uh, what are the different ways in which you see blood is complicating the discussion of holiness and our relationship to God? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, I mean, I talk, talk about this and, and, and you know, gosh, if you want to get into atonement theory, we certainly can. Um, that was my next question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> always the one that comes up. But I think as a, as a kind of starter into... Uh, kind of the notion of, of of blood and what blood's doing. I think definitely Milgram, you know, he talks about blood as a detergent that washes, kind of washes and cleanses things. Um, and I think certainly that's right. And, you know, this idea that the, you know, this is kind of Leviticus 17, this, that the life, the life is in the blood, but God has given it for atonement. Um, so there is this, there, there, especially in Leviticus, I think more so obviously than any other book in the Bible, there is this very particular 
you know, almost the illogical explanation that you don't usually find in the Old Testament. You know, you don't usually find something as as detailed as telling telling you what it actually means. Usually, Leviticus just gives you the ritual, and that's it. You know, there's no ex, no explanation. So it seems like, at least certainly in Leviticus, that that Leviticus is you know that blood is the is the fundamentally the property of God. It is it is kind of his under his and his his only divine kind of purview but you know because of the state of humanity because of our uncleanness or because we live in the world and you know we become unclean through sin but we also become unclean through I don't know, you know, I mean, through, you know, for, for women, if it's menstruation or it could be, you know, you, you actually. Anything that drips out of us, basically. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Male to, or female. To if put it, it crassly. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Anything that kind of oozes and drips out of you. Um, you know, so you can become unclean for all sorts of reasons, but, <clears throat> but Leviticus kind of shaped blood in this idea that, that this life somehow is used for is used god gives it to us to offer on his altar the altar is fundamentally and i think again this is milgram also the the altar is what you know so blood in and of itself doesn't do anything but when it is it comes in contact with the altar through sacrifice then it kind of ignites as it were it becomes this kind of atoning work now the interesting thing is in leviticus and i think maybe this is one of the the kind of points of interest for me as a christian that that really shifted my thinking was was that in leviticus the primary function i would say of blood is to cleanse the tabernacle space, right? So it's this, you know, this idea that sin builds up and can defile the actual physical space of the tabernacle. And so that needs to be cleansed. And so, you know, so there's also a a kind of a, 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 almost a secondary, if you'd put it that way, cleansing of the individual, but the sin has an effect on God's space, on his home. And so one of the things that's fascinating about that is that when you then go to the New Testament and you think now, obviously, there's multiple layers of what is happening on the cross in terms of, you know, the Passover lamb, um, you know, in terms of the blood sacrifice, day of atonement, all these kinds of things wrapped together in one uh, in one image on the cross. But there is something about the idea that the author of Hebrews picks up, which is this, you know, this work Christ's sacrifice on the cross, the blood that is spilled is kind of this once for all blood. And Christ in doing so is allowed to enter into kind of the heavenly tabernacle as it were, right? So we have this, we're in this earthly tabernacle and he enters into the heavenly space and it's as if his blood then is kind of covering in this this cosmic way and so what i was so surprised by when i went back and read um and read was it is it colossians 1 uh 1 or something where it says you know that 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 everything has been reckoned you know everything on earth and in heaven you know has been reconciled through the blood of christ now that is you know, fundamentally i mean just when i went back i remember after doing all this I read read that passage again I thought, oh, that's not just a throwaway line. 
That is like that is the absolute heart of what atoning sacrifice does. But now these New Testament authors have said this isn't just blood shed, the blood of animals shed for the atoning of the temple space, the tabernacle space. This is the blood of the Son of God that has now kind of atoned for the entirety of the cosmos, you know, from heaven and earth, that all things, everything is reconciled through the blood of Christ. And so, and so there's, a, there's a fascinating um, study by this guy, uh, what's his name? It's not Jonathan, Ben, ben Stöckel, uh, he's German, German job, uh, who's written this, um, this book on uh, Yom Kippur in the Second Temple period. And you, and you have these kind of Second Temple texts about this, you know, this kind of looking forward to this eschatological, this future day of atonement when, you know, when this, you know, the priest of Aaron or Melchizedek or whoever is going to come back will have this kind of one sacrifice that will cleanse, you know, all things. And and that's a fascinating one to think about when we get, you know, kind of closer towards a New Testament context. But yeah, but I think that's the key for me. I mean, I think that's the thing that really shifted my understanding of of what potentially is fundamentally happening on the cross in terms of sacrifice and as and the concepts of blood that you're talking about as they relate to to what we read in Leviticus and and the whole kind of system of of kind of sacrificial offering what blood means it just it really puts the cross into a different perspective i don't know if you you found that yeah i mean even you saying it like that i mean that passage in colossians where it's all every all i mean it's punta 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 yeah, punta yeah, yeah. punta all, 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 all. yeah uh and in like how how it would be very difficult to part of from following this line of logic that you're tracing out here to even hear that as a ritual text as referring, you know, as a Levitical uh, epiphany as it were. Right. Um, which we know that, uh, well, I shouldn't say we know that everything's controversial. Right. But that, uh, that letter that Colossians includes seemingly Jewish festivals that might be uh, being held above what uh, being a member of the community of Christ is doing. So, and the connection of circumcision to baptism there for many of us is strong. Uh, yep. <laughs> for some others, not. I'm strong. on that one. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, that's uh, like, that's a fantastic way to kind of like make Levitical text pop again. I think that was my endorsement for the book was, yeah. Yes. You make Leviticus make great again. Leviticus great again. <laughs> I love it. I, yeah. almost, I almost got an MLGA <laughs> hat on. <laughs> I was going to wear I one. I should have sent, it, I sent one to you. <laughs> Well, even when you were saying like not mocking uh, people with uh, disabilities, I was like, oh yeah, okay. So all kinds of reasons Leviticus, Leviticus is doing all kinds of work for us. Um, I think you kind of addressed the question I was going to ask on atonement. You you actually pieced it out quite beautifully there. But I think it's time for a speed round right now. Okay. Are you are all you right. are you emotionally prepared? I'm emotionally prepared for this. I think. All right, just just a few uh, things. Uh, just you know, this is again, you can be quick, simple with your answers. Uh, what biblical theological work has had the greatest impact on you as a thinker? And you can just say, take all of my monographs out of the list. Yeah, Let's just keep it straight you. here. <laughs> <laughs> besides you, um, oh gosh, I mean, there's, there's so many. I, I, I would say I couldn't limit it to one, but I would say the work of Gerhard von Rad probably had the, had, maybe that, that's had the most, the most influence. Yeah. 
Yeah. And and uh, would that also be like a trickle down? Because I feel like I read Von Rod, but I read it because other people were advising me to. And mm. there was this kind of like, oh, this is important. And then I read it. And I was like, oh, okay. I see. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 I just loved what he was doing. I just loved everything that, you know, his, I mean, even if I didn't agree with it all, but, but, you know, what, the, the trajectory he was taking, I thought that's what I want. That's what I, I like. I like the way he's thinking. Yeah. So I think he's probably the most influential. Yeah. And uh, and probably some people are rolling their eyes at that, but that's okay. You just roll them all the way back at home. <laughs> that's right. uh, or keep your eyes on the road, whatever is most appropriate. Uh, okay, so I'm going to test your knowledge of Americana poetry because you've been living in greater Britain in, for quite I a know. while now. I know, I know. You I should know. know this one. Okay. I will tell you right now, Christian Eberhard did not know this one, but you should know this one. And he lives in Texas of all places. Okay. If I told you that Jimmy cracked corn... How would you feel about that? Oh, I don't care. Come on, ah, that one I got. You got it. You got it. Yeah, right. yeah, that one I got. Man, if you got that one wrong, I was going to revoke <laughs> that really your passport. Pretty bad. <laughs> that would have been pretty bad. Um, what's one of the most memorable or awkward things that's happened to you in a classroom? Or maybe even in church, because you're in church every week. I mean, it, 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 it wasn't, I mean, it was awkward, but it was kind of funny awkward because I set myself up for it. Um, I, I, I teach on baptism with our uh, kind of students who are going out to be priests. And, um, and so, of course, you know, you have, to, you have to talk about circumcision. And, you know, what, what better way to talk about circumcision than having a fun image? And so I, I don't know where I came across it, <laughs> but I had the, I best, love this story the already. best image of a, um, it was of a banana that like the head <laughs> was cut off. The Wait, top part are we going to have to put a warning on this episode? Oh, no, I know, I know. It's so bad. Anyway, so, the, but the funny part of it is, is not so much the image. Anyway, I had that had part of like the skin part of it cut off, you know, at that one part and just sit off to the side. And so all my students were laughing. And then I said, um, and th this was the funny part, actually. I said, I said, well, whatever you do, just do not Google, you know, Google images for circumcision. And what happens like the entire class, <laughs> I just see, doing. I just see everybody looking at their screens, typing, right. typing furiously. And then the like face on the late, like on the women's faces just plummeted. And I just said, yeah. Oh no. You might as well tell oh, them, don't think of a pink elephant. Right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, that was pretty That's a good funny. one. That That's a good funny. one. Have you picked up any Britishisms? Because you've lived in the UK in, for how long now? Gosh, almost 15 years, I think. Okay, 15, 15 years, years. Yeah. 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 So I picked up some I didn't even know any, but this is a specific qual a category, right? So have you picked up any Britishisms that your American family or friends make fun of? Yes. I mean, I, I don't say it very often, but I will say just for the sake of not being mocked over here, I think that was probably why, why I say it. But I switched, to, um, I switched to talking about the wrath of God and not the wrath of God. So I, so I, so I don't, I don't say that one. Um, I probably have so many others that I just don't even notice anymore. You know, and it, it, it is funny because part of it, when I go home, people are like, why do you, you know, why do you say that? And, and, and part of it is actually just, you know, linguistically, when you're in another country, you, you just say things. And if you say them in an American way, people kind of look at you strange. So you get tired of people looking at you strange. So you just start saying them the other way. Like you, say something like advertisement or, you know, rather than advertisement or you say, you know, I'm going to use the lift or, you know, there, there goes the lorry. You know, it's just, you just start switching for the sake of, you know, you just get so tired of, of trying to explain yourself basically. And, and I, I found that it's, it's not even as much terminology, all that can be that depending on who you're dealing with, but also just the kind of the sing songiness of British 
English and haven't you, right? Like yeah, I would have never yeah. said haven't you, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's true. There, and it just feels very natural. And my kids still make fun of me that I, I did not even realize it, but I was apparently still saying lever, uh, the, yeah, the lever, lever's a power. And my kids started making fun of oh, me. Oh, so. <laughs> yes. I guess I picked it up without, uh, without even knowing it. Oh, um, what do you find most troubling or challenging about your Bible? About my about my Bible, <laughs> as opposed to your Bible. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what do I find most troubling about my Bible? About the Bible. Um, the Bible. Yeah, it can be your Bible as well, if you'd like. Yeah, I think. Oh, you know what? Actually, you know what I find troubling. I was just reading. Um, uh, oh gosh, is it Joshua seven or nine? And I was reading the end of the story of Achan, and I and I just thought. The whole family stoned and then burned. And I thought, man, this is sometimes why I just don't like reading the Bible. I know there's something in there, but but man, oh man, that that's just one of those passages where I thought, oh, gosh, how do I explain that to anybody? You know? Yeah, that one, I because I read a lot aloud in class, and I kind of read that, and I just hope nobody stops me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Just like, like okay, like, next. Please, please don't ask me a question on that one. And then just, we're going to have some boundary markers. Uh, and there's all sorts of ones in, you know, I mean, there's so many like things in Joshua that I could go through as, as I'm sure you could too. And step-by-step step with your students, you could say, oh, well, we understand this one. We understand this one. And, and, you know, but that one is just one of those ones where I'm like, I don't, I don't get it. You know, I mean, stoned and then burned and then, you know, it's like the whole, the whole, the whole family, you know, chill, you know, men, women, children, you just, oh, yeah, you don't even want to go there. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, That's a bad one. for a subtle transition, I have some ritual <laughs> jokes. All right. Yeah. The, these are uh, Okay. Here. Now, here, here's the way we play this game. Um, I'll give you the setup and you have to finish the joke. So we'll see how close you come to what the actual joke is. Okay. I read a novel about a cult that sacrifices books. Leviticus. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. The answer was it was a real page burner. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, okay. 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 That's okay. Good so that was your warm up one. All right, um, yeah, like good. This, this one is a stretch. I'll just admit it. Um, I wanted to see if some geese, I wanted to see some geese at the pond, but I refused to perform the blood sacrifice required. As they say, don't sacrifice geese. <laughs> no harm, no foul. Okay. Um, <laughs> that one, that's no, a stretch. That was a stretch. Uh, a friend of mine tried to recreate an ancient Incan cattle sacrifice, but... But it was bull. <laughs> uh, hey, that's, that's not bad. <laughs> yeah, that's no, not bad but uh, he totally butchered it. Uh, um, <laughs> nice. Okay. My dad, this is, a, this is an actual dad joke that was made. My dad was complaining that he'd lost a sock after doing his laundry. I said, it's a sacrifice to the dryer gods. And he said, Oh, I don't know. What did he say? It's a sacrifice. Oh, that's a good one. That <laughs> yeah, one that I should actually. That one I should clever. use. Yeah, yeah that, that one I like. That one I like. Okay. Uh, back to serious matters. You include the, the name or the, the animal rock badger 
in the subtitle of this book. <laughs> so Hyrax. So yeah, the Hyrax. So what what are you uh, doing with the rock? Why the rock badger? And what does it have to do with Christians who want to engage Leviticus? <laughs> I thought you were going to say Christians who want to eat rock badgers. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, in, Lima, in Peru, they would. But What should they do? Um, yeah. yeah, you know, it's just funny because, I, I mean, I think as we've been talking, you know, the, the, the whole world of Leviticus, and unless you really dig down deep into it, it just seems like this quirky, crazy, you know, kooky world of just something that means nothing to anybody anymore, um, but maybe had some sort of meaning back then. And the rock badger is one of those lists of creatures on the do not eat list for uh, in Leviticus 11 for the um, for the dietary laws. And I just loved it. Um, and and the editors or the folks over at um, over at Cascader Whiff and Stock found a wonderful picture for the front cover of these. <laughs> that is the <laughs> cover of the book. Is. It is. Little family so, of Hyrax. Family of Hyrax. Yeah. Um, but Which they I make think, the cutest little noises. I don't they, know if, have you run into them in, in Israel? I've, no, I've just seen them on like a video. I, okay. I haven't run into them in Israel. You, they're at En Gedi. So if you're ever in Israel and you're down at the Dead Sea, you go over to En Gedi and you'll see them there. And they get they get pretty close. Anyways, they're very, they're very cute. They are. They're very cute and cuddly. But I just thought... You know, I thought <laughs> thought one is just about the quirkiness of Leviticus, and one, and the the second thing is is just that how can how can not eating a rock badger, you know, not eating a rock badger, actually make me holy? You know, how, how does it have anything to do with holiness? And that I, I think that became kind of the 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 center of of what the book was about, which is basically like you know these things are so strange that we really have to delve into this world to figure out what in the world it's talking about. And then, then in the end, I mean, I think, you know, we had, you know, all sorts of several discussions with different, different student groups and different people about the, just even something like the dietary laws and, and what they do theologically in forming and shaping, you know, God's holy people. And I said, you know, even if we don't understand why, you know, a rock badger is on the do not eat list or why, you know, birds of prey are on the do not eat list. And there's, and there's some great scholarly theories around all of these things. But I said, even if we don't know what to do with these things, I said, what does it teach us fundamentally about, again, you know, and this goes back to the sacred world, about who we are in God's world? you know, and who, what we can do in response to the created order around us. Because what these commands fundamentally tell us is that God has, you know, God has created all things, um, but he limits our, you know, physical desires, our desires to eat whatever it is we want to eat. Um, You know, in Leviticus 18 and 21, you know, God limits our sexual desires. You can't have sex with anybody you want for the sake of... Or anything. Or anything. That's true. Exactly. Or any animal. It's going to be Levitical. I know. Exactly. Exactly. And so... You know, there is this sense of, um, you know, I, I wrote this this little article on our online journal that for the St. Edwards Institute, but but there is this sense, and this actually comes up in uh, in Norma, Norman Weir's book, um, The Sacred Life. Um, there is this sense of the world we live in now has this again, you know, this desacralized world treats the treats the you know our environment treats the whole kind of economy of, of an ecology of the world as just simply material, as have has, having no spiritual or kind of sacred significance, and so there is this sense that we as human beings 
are only limited by our desires you know that 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 to achieve you know this driving force of you know pr- production consumption making things faster uh technology you know technology um you know getting faster and and more efficient um you know we we kind of follow this you know this this kind of juggernaut of you know modernity into this world where we think as human beings we should never be limited um and i can't remember if it was in this book or in something else but it was you know it was someone was we're talking about this idea of the colonization of mars right you know this, this kind of this great you know great plan to colonize the, the colonized space and how you know absolutely you know moronic the idea is but yet makes complete sense in this culture of production acceleration advancement because if you can no longer advance your uh, you know or if you can no longer consume or if you no longer can technologically innovate within this place within this earth on which we live then go do it somewhere else because then that fulfills this desire you know to you know, go, you know, go above and beyond and, and, you know, and to go, colonize because yeah. that desire has <laughs> turned out so well. Exactly. In the course exactly. of human affairs. Yeah. yeah, exactly. When there's no more places to colonize, what do you do? You have to, you know, you have to innovate, you have to go beyond this earth. So it's just, it's just fascinating, but this is where I think, you know, again, this comes back to the rock badger. This is where kind of the simple beauty of Leviticus, you know, gives the Israelites these, you know, kind of these formulations in their life, whether it's around dietary laws, sexual laws, how to make sacrifices, how to treat your neighbor, how to plant your crops, how to take care of the alien or the stranger among you, how not to, you know, scorn the deaf or the blind, whatever it is, it gives you this, a worldview where you as a human being created in God's image, function and operate to bring about kind of the flourishing of creation and, and you know, in, in your world around you, you know, your family home, your farm, your, your vineyards, you know, your neighborhood, your people around you. This is, you know, being rooted in place and allowing that rootedness to begin to uh, build up the community of faith and life. This is, you know, this is what Kind of holiness is about and so i think we just we just live in such a oh gosh i mean we just live in such a dynamically different world that to go back to some of these you know what seem to be you know the most quirky like make no sense type of commands and then all of a sudden when you step back from it and you think ah you know maybe we as a society need a little bit more <laughs> of this you know and and of this humility as we you know, situate ourselves within God's world of understanding that we don't have, you know, it's not just our dominion to do whatever we want with, you know, that that actually, you know, God prescribes these things to help us understand that we're part of his creation, that there are limits to what we you know what we can do that are healthy um so that's what that's where i think leviticus is such a great reminder of that you know because you do get these kind of you know and 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 we've seen it over the past you know whatever decades you know these these christian kind of doctrines or theologies that come up of of you know of dominion as you know really nothing different than cultural like you know what are what are kind of you know modern culture is telling us that we have 
They the might right, even you know, be just what our culture is telling yeah, us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Baptizing exactly. Baptizing yeah. Christianese. Like, you know, we yeah. have dominion. We have, you know, we can use the world in any way we want, you know, and, and, and that's, you know, and, and there's nothing, you know, I'm free in Jesus Christ. Don't try to limit my human freedom or my human rights. You know, I mean, human rights. It's like, well, wait a second, you know, do, wait, wait, you know, how does this stack up with, with who you are, you know, within God's creation, you know, and, and, and I think, you know, a lot of times it, it doesn't, you know, you're right. It's just, just kind of the cultural syncretism there. Uh, and if I, if I hear you correctly from the book, it seemed like you were also getting at something which I hadn't fully appreciated, um, which is there's actually some liberation to this, like freeing you up from all these things that you would do otherwise that will eventually just cause you to hate yourself uh, or hate yourself as a community or an individual. Um, and so kind of like we do with, you know, young folks as we're trying to form them and shape them. So you're like, you could do that, but you'll, you'll just look back and be like, why did I do that? Right. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that comes out, I think, I mean, that came out most clearly to me in the the laws around sex, basically Leviticus 18 and 21, because that was so striking how, <laughs> so striking one, one, how like, you know, when you start reading those laws, you're like, was it that bad? You know, <laughs> well, I like to put names from Genesis next to all the close relatives. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah, actually. Because they nail just about all of them. No, so, no, yeah, yeah, exactly. Not, not, but no, so, no but, pun intended. But not only not <laughs> but but not only that, but it's but it's this, you know, again, it's this idea that that God has instituted these, you know, these commands for the preservation of the family. You know, and that the, that the family is, you know, fundamentally this bait of the house of the father is fundamentally the place where life and faith is cultivated in its, you know, in its strongest and purest form, as it were. And, you know, again, the authors were so aware, and I think our culture, again, is completely unaware of how, you know, kind of crossing sexual boundaries that are not meant to be crossed, you know, lead ultimately to the destruction of the family you know and and you know we'll see that later in um you know in the david's son in the rape of absalom absalom isn't it absalom or is it amnon amnon yeah, you've got it. <laughs> My brain's fried. Um, but 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 you see that kind of you know that breaking of the Levitical law. You know, is is sex with his with his sister one of his you know, removed. But um, but then you know comes the destruction of the entire family. You know, and from that point, you know, it's just it's just a downward Which slope. Seems derivative also of David's dozens of wives, or how we don't even know how many wives he has. Right? Like, yeah. The polygyny that's run rampant there. Yeah, it's a total mess. Yeah, order order for safety and liberation, right? Um, but that'll be a definitely a hard message for some people to hear, that that might still be a good thing. Um, and some people might vehemently disagree with it, I'm sure. But I think you've made a, a lovely case. Uh, this is a journey through the world of Leviticus in the book we're talking about here, Holiness, Sacrifice, and the Rock Badger. I'm not lying when I said that he has made Leviticus great again. It is it is the most eloquent, accessible read I've ever seen uh, that allows Christians to like fully immerse themselves in the world of Leviticus and think through it. So uh, I thank you for the book, Mark, and I thank you for your time today. Thanks, Drew. It was great to be with you. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. 
If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just two or five dollars per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study/donate.